South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, as science advisor Matt Moniz is out in the field. He's down at Waverly Hills in Kentucky with Todd Sheets and the Night Watchers group. And, and Matt, that music that we played coming into the show here, you know what that music means? That I'm afraid of snakes? Well, you're afraid of snakes even if there's That's true. But that means that the new film Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull comes out this week it, it arrives in theaters may 22nd i'm very excited i'm a huge indiana jones fan myself i, I don't know about yourself yeah, i definitely. know i know you like the movies but i mean are you a, are you a huge indie fan i don't know if i'd be a diehard fan but um i definitely enjoyed the movies as a kid and i enjoy the movies to this day i think they've hold, held up over time i mean and that's I'm hard ex- to do yeah i'm excited for the new one that, that's hard to do a lot of times uh when, when you've got a movie with so much space in between you know different chapters of the film saga like when you look at star wars you know and the the 20 years that they had between films or almost 20 years uh, and this one 19 years from last crusade to now uh do you think that that builds expectations to a ridiculously high level or does that kind of make it where so much time has passed people will say well there's no need to really top the previous film because so much time has passed just give me something indiana jones and i'm happy yeah i think it's the uh as long as they get some sort of indiana jones Mm -hmm. they'll be happy I mean, we saw the same kind of thing happen with, I know it's not even really comparable, but Rocky. Yeah. You know, when the new, I haven't seen the new Rambo, so I can't really compare that. But, you know, when, when Rocky Balboa came out, it was more, it didn't have to be, you know, Rocky yeah, 4. I, I saw it. Because there is no Rocky 5. Just no. saying. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I saw, I did see Rocky, and it, it, it was like what you're saying. It was, uh, it wasn't a great movie, mm-hmm. but it was a Rocky movie. It, it's kind so of that nostalgia like, value, the yeah. revisitation of the character. But also, you know, at the same time, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg aren't just going to settle for, you know, just a nostalgic trip down memory lane either. I mean, they're going to pack a punch to this movie no matter what. definitely. And, and of course, the idea behind the film is, from what we understand, everything's so tightly under wraps. But from what we understand, Indiana Jones is in the process of trying to locate these crystal skulls, these uh, mysterious crystal skulls, and keep them out of the hands of these Soviets. It takes place in the 1950s. So... What do you know about crystal skulls? I mean, I've I've heard about them. I've read a little bit about them, but you know, the, I didn't think they were really that big on the archaeology radar. But to know that Indiana Jones is chasing after them, I, I guess they're kind of a big deal. Yeah, I, I had no idea what. Actually, this is kind of like the first time I've ever heard of them. Really, was with this movie. Um, there was, I mean, a few things here and there, as far as uh, I don't know if you've ever played the Indiana Jones. Uh, old PC game, but he was going after the Crystal Skulls in that one. This, it's, it's something that, it, from Which, what I've read on the internet, it's something that Indiana Jones has 
has been involved with in the past, like you said, the video game. And I know that uh, they wrote an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that never aired in which Indiana Jones was trying to track down these crystal skulls. So maybe Lucas has a, a reason for this. Maybe there's a prominent you know, part of his life that crystal skulls are involved in, and he's just trying to tie the two together. Do you know what the original planned storyline for the new Indiana Jones movie was? At least as Lucas wrote it. I, I don't. But but the original idea was to call it uh, Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men from Mars. Really? Or maybe it was the attack of the Saucer Men from Mars. But essentially it was going to be uh, Indiana Jones um, battling space aliens. Yeah, that sounds uh, interesting, Yeah, to say the least. I don't know how, how that would translate to a live action. Well, you know, it's, it's, I thought about this today. And uh, even the new film, if you've seen the trailer, you know, it starts off in a, in a warehouse in Roswell, New Mexico. So, I mean, there's still that type of tie-in, but I, I was thinking about this today. And the original Indiana Jones films, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, you know, they were kind of meant to be those adventure stories from the 1930s and 40s, those Errol Flynn swashbuckling-type adventure pieces. And, and that was the idea behind, you know, how they filmed it. They even filmed it in that style and, and put them together in that style. So now we're in the 1950s with Indiana Jones. The, the exact amount of time has passed between one movie to the next as has in real life. So now you're moving into the era of filmmaking where they had these over-the-top invaders from Mars type of films. So maybe you know Lucas was just thinking he would ride the genre and go with the changes of the genre the same way that real movies did. Maybe. Or he just wanted to uh, combine two of his greatest uh, ideas. I think he figured with Crystal Skulls, there's only so much marketing and novelty and toy campaigning you can do with Crystal Skulls. Yeah. But if you introduce aliens, I mean, you know, look at how many different Action creatures there have been. Yeah, for Star Wars figures. So yeah. I can't blame a guy for, for making even more ridiculously huge amounts of money. It's true. But uh, from what I understand, too, Harrison Ford read that story idea and said, uh, no. So I guess maybe this one probably won't veer too much into the paranormal realm. I got to agree with Harrison Ford. I would have watched it no matter what it was about. <laughs> you know, it could be Indiana Jones in the search for a can opener to open this can of tuna fish. And I'd still watch it as long as I hear that Raiders march playing, I see the fedora and hear the crack of the whip, I'm all set. So uh, why don't we try to learn a little bit more about Crystal Skulls? All right, well, in, in anticipation of the upcoming uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you know, Matt, one thing that we've never talked about here on Spooky South Coast are the Crystal Skulls. That's true. It's something that's uh, it's a fascinating topic, but we just haven't gotten into it because we haven't had the right, you know, researcher to come on and talk about it. And I think we found the right person. We have joining us on the line Joshua Illinois Shapiro. Uh, he's been involved with Crystal Skull since 1983 when he had an opportunity to be in the presence of an amethyst skull located in Northern California. At that time, he felt a very strong connection with this artifact, which forever changed his life. And since then, he has devoted a great deal of time and effort to sharing with others key information about the crystal skulls and the role they have to play in the prophesized golden age. Uh, he's examined a number of the most well-known crystal skulls. We'll talk to him about all those. He's also the author of various books, such as Mysteries of the Crystal Skulls Revealed and Journeys of the Crystal Skull Explorers. And in addition to his crystal skull research, he has lectured extensively on UFOs, crop circles, and the Bible Code. And he's actually joining us tonight just uh, a few 24 hours or so before he's going to make an appearance on Fox News. How are you tonight, Joshua? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Uh, we're spooktacular, as we like to say here. Right. Well, I have to get used to your terminology then. 
Well, now, it's interesting because, you know, everybody's talking about crystal skulls. If you do a Google News search this week, there's been probably 50 different stories about crystal skulls. And for someone such as yourself who, you know, for over 20 years now has been researching these, it it must feel good that it's finally paying off, that people are paying attention to this research. Uh, Yes, it feels very good, but we're still waiting to see how people are going to respond to, you know, the film that's coming out with Indiana Jones and also how the media is going to portray the crystal skulls. Uh, you know, if they're really going to uh, share with people how they actually are or if they're going to, uh, you know, be challenging. So, But, yes, very interesting. And uh, I'm sure my life is going to change for the rest of this year in the next week. Oh, absolutely. Now, one thing we can't be sure of, as you said, is how the film is going to portray crystal skulls because... It's been kept under such tight wraps. There's very little known about the film and, and its treatment of the skulls. But we know that in the past, George Lucas has been very in-depth in a lot of his research. Steven Spielberg, very in-depth in a lot of his research. So hopefully they're going to really you know, stick to the, to the facts on this one. But what do people need to know most about these crystal skulls? Well, uh, that's a good question. Where could I start on such a question? <laughs> uh I think maybe we should talk about the three different kinds of crystal skulls that are defined. Uh, that might be of benefit for your listeners. The Society of Crystal Skulls International, which was started by F.R. Nick Nasserino in 1944, fortunately he passed away a few years ago, they basically defined the crystal skulls in three different classifications. As uh, ancient crystal skulls, which are ones that According to their definition, over a thousand years created, I look more like 1500 or 2000, old crystal skulls and contemporary new crystal skulls. Now, of course, when we're speaking about crystal skulls, we're talking about a piece of quartz crystal that has been put into the shape of a human skull or like a human bone skull. And the major problem that we have with the crystal skulls with these definitions is we do not yet have a precise way that we can say scientifically well, this is an old skull or that's an ancient skull. Of course, the new skulls we know because we know the carvers who are making them and we know the techniques that the carvers are using. But the old and the ancient ones, these are a little more hard to find. And we have what's called the World Mystery Research Center, which is based here where I am right now in Chicago. And one of the goals that we have, which hopefully we'll get more backing because of the more interest in crystal skulls right now, is to do more specific research with scientists because generally in order to know an older ancient skull involves doing paranormal research, and that's not where everybody's at at the moment, Mm -hmm. although it's very interesting when you get involved in it. Well, when you say paranormal research, what exactly does that entail? Well, paranormal means things that are beyond the normal, and the easiest way for me to define that would be we all know that we have five physical senses, and we assume that reality as we perceive it comes through those five senses, However, there are people, we call them sensitives or psychics, who are using what are called inner senses or what I call are comparable to the, to the five physical senses. So you have some people who see inner visions. You have a person like myself who sometimes I'm hearing things and, you know, for some people they might say, oh, Joshua is crazy, but I'm following the, the information that's being given to me and it's taking me on the most grandest, interesting adventures and I'm also uh, meeting remarkable people, and sometimes the information is telling me to do something exactly is done in precise mode. So the paranormal basically means working with sensitives 
who are sensitive to other frequencies of energy beyond what we can detect through the physical senses that provide us information about the history of what are the crystal skulls, especially the old or the ancient ones. So we kind of combine the scientific and the paranormal, try to see, you know, where do they agree and, and how they can give us a better idea. Because the key thing about the crystal skulls is that so many people, when they're having contact with them, are having unbelievable experiences, and that even includes now with some of the new ones as well. Like, in, like here, as I'm talking to you, we have a table filled with some of the newer skulls that are carved, and some of these guys are pretty active in, in our sessions, are providing interesting experiences for people who have them. So, you know, maybe people listening might say, well, Josh was talking science fiction or fantasy, but what I'm trying to do as, as accurately as I possibly can is to report to people in the 25 years I've been involved what I've observed, what I've seen, uh, my personal experiences, other people's experiences, and then, you know, try to come up with some theories to explain what is going on with this because it's really, it's absolutely amazing. Well, what are some of the things that will go on with these skulls when you're working with them? I know that uh, there's a news story floating out there uh, from the Associated Press where they talk about uh, skulls actually glowing and, and, and coming alive at night with, with this ethereal glow. Well, this is what some people have written to us. Uh, for example, uh, uh, with the uh, Mitchell Hedges crystal skull, which uh, a lot of people uh, on the weekend uh, uh, will be Sunday the, the 18th, they're going to be seeing the Mitchell Hedges skull on the Sci-Fi Channel. And I don't know what the History Channel is going to show, but... Uh, there have been reports of people who have had a chance to work with that crystal skull that have reported seeing like lights or things glowing around it. Uh, so if we look at that, what could possibly be happening? So are you giving me permission to offer some theories about this? Oh, absolutely. It, okay. Um, okay, number one, in the research that we've done, and when I say research, I mean we've worked with different electronic devices where we've put people... Uh, like in front of crystal skulls, but they've been blindfolded. So we've tried, we put different things around them, and we have machines that measure changes, psychological changes and energetic changes in a person's body. Uh, what happens is when the crystal skulls are introduced, if they're what we call an activated skull, and I'm trying to make this as simple as possible because some of these ideas may sound a little bit far, far-fetched. Activated crystal skull means that there's an individual who's worked with that crystal skull over a period of time. And either through personal meditation, taking it to sacred sites, bringing it in the presence of some of these very, very old crystal skulls, somehow what happens is the crystal skull starts to become alive. It becomes alive to such a degree that many people will start telling you, and again, it sounds crazy, but it's happening with myself, with my partner, Blue Arrow Rainbow. We have people that are writing to us all the time. It's as if that skull has a living presence connected to it and is is emanating some kind of an energy field around it which has an effect upon people. Now, could it be, like let's take for example, we know when you have a pyramid that is done in a very precise way, when you, when you go down one-third of the way from the top of the pyramid, there's like very unusual things that happen, like metal rejuvenates, people feel very energized in this location, well, I think that there's something around. This is my theory anyway. When you put a piece of quartz crystal and you try to duplicate it into the shape of a human bone skull, it's almost as if it has the potential, if it's 
activated this. It's waking up. This the crystal is waking up, which comes through contact with human beings and what the people are doing with it. It starts to have like a presence with it, and people start saying, "Oh, my skull has this name." Like for example, right now I'm looking at my large crystal skull, which is called Portal de Luz, which means portal of light. And this crystal skull will talk to me. This crystal calls me dad and says, Dad, when you're writing your new book, which is Journeys of, a, of the Crystal Skull Explorers, I want to sit there with you. And it was like while I was writing, I was getting some kind of like extra help, you know, where I was in a different space. So the best thing I could say that seems to be happening around the crystal skulls, as crazy as it sounds, is there's some kind of energy field around it and they have an intelligence. Another example of this would be there was a sensitive I know, by the name of Carol Wilson Davis. She had an opportunity to sit with the Mitchell Hedges skull. I think it was back in the 1980s, 1990s. She went into an altered state of consciousness, and there was actually a strange voice coming through her. And the voice was saying, I'm speaking for the intelligence that has been programmed inside of this crystal skull, and this crystal skull comes all the way back from Atlantis. So what I'm trying to say by, by giving these different ideas, although they, they may sound disjointed, is there are so many unusual things that are happening around the crystal skulls that, for example, I'm hoping on the interview that's going to be aired on Hannity's America, which will be on May 18th, that the, the message I issued to scientists as kind of a challenge, I'm asking them, please join us, help us to figure out what's going on here, because, you know, we're just amateurs, and we're watching this phenomenon go on, and we're trying to do research with different devices and things, but I think if some serious scientists got involved, we might discover that these crystal skulls have information and knowledge encoded inside of them, which is vital for the future of humanity, and that's exactly what I felt when I saw the amethyst crystal skull that you mentioned, which really got me going. I really felt like these were the ancient computers, and they're important for the future. And how can we show people that it has this information or this energy? How can we prove it? We have to do it in a scientific way. Otherwise, people will just think, you know, that these are just stories and people are making it up. But we're hearing from too many people. It's not being made up. It's really happening. And I'm doing my best, you know, to, to try to help to figure it out. Well, I'm sorry that our science advisor and co-host Matt Moniz is uh, actually out in the field tonight because he is an actual uh, scientist, and I know he would be willing to get into this research with you. One thing that he's taught us and, and that we've come to, to learn in the process of paranormal investigation is that quartz uh, is a basically a recorder of energy, and that's why we use it in wristwatches and, and different digital devices. So is it possible that these skulls came into contact with people giving off that energy or into something and it's it's basically just recording it and holding it in you know no different than uh like you said you know like a computer like a like a cd or a, or a dvd it's just holding that information in there uh and that it's been programmed in that way uh yes i agree that um the older ones well this comes from the indigenous people they say that these very very old crystal skulls uh, like, for example, the Mayans are one of the few indigenous or native tribes that will talk about skulls. They did not make these old skulls. They were given these old skulls, possibly by extraterrestrials. They came from Atlantis. And when they were given these old skulls, they already had tremendous energy and information encoded. And some of the elders will talk about that what they'll do is they'll go and do a meditation with these old skulls. And telepathically, they talk with them or they receive knowledge or information inside of them. 
One example I like to give, which is, you know, something everybody could relate to, is if I went back 100 years and I brought with me a DVD, you know, just this little thin disc, and I told the people of that time, hey, you'll never believe what's on here. There are movies, motion pictures, entire library of books, music, people talking, everything. And people would say, my God, you're insane. Let's put you in the funny farm. It's because in that time, 100 years ago, we did not have a device that could read a DVD like we do now. So this is the way that I look at the crystal skulls. Could they be the very old ones, special devices that were created by very advanced civilizations from the past or, or gifts from the gods? You know, these, these are the leading theories about it. And now, all of a sudden, all uh, many people are becoming quite fascinated and interested in them because they're putting out a message that's touching us on some subconscious level that now they're ready to give us the information we need. Because really, if you look at it, our world is in a very crucial period of time. We've got a lot of crazy things going on right now, but we also have a lot of wonderful things that are going on right now. And the indigenous people say the crystal skulls are linked to their prophecies and that, you know, like they talk about there might be a master set of 13, that if those 13 come together at the right time in the right place, that could be the catalyst for world peace to happen. That's part of their prophecy. So a lot more research needs to be done on this, and I tell you, it keeps me very busy. I mean, you know, I think ah, I, I know about everything there is to know, and the next thing I know, somebody's writing to me, and this actually happened this week. There's a man that says he's seen another crystal skull I've never heard about, and I'm just waiting for pictures to see maybe this is another ancient one coming out. So it's, uh, it's very, very exciting, and I'm really looking forward to see what's going to happen next. Oh, we are talking with Joshua Shapiro, crystal skull researcher, and you, you mentioned you know that uh, some of these skulls are from ancient times, pre-Columbian times, and some of them are known to be you know 19th century uh, man-made you know replica creations. Uh, one thing that you can't do with these crystal skulls is is carbon date them, right? They can't be because uh, it just won't work with quartz. That's correct. However, there was one person who told me there's a way to do it. He said, if there's an impurity inside of the quartz crystal, well, all you have to do is just destroy the artifact, and then you can date it, and then you'll know how old it is. But, of course, then you won't have it anymore. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to be going that route anytime soon. But oh, I you, don't think you so. can tell a lot of these later skulls uh, from the 19th century by the fact that there are a lot of tool marks on them from, from modern tools, right? Yes. What happens is when you use a high-power microscope and you're able to observe the surface, you will actually see the marks that are made by different tools. For example, today, the tools that the carvers are using are diamond tip tools. And diamond, of course, being the hardest substance, will, will cut through the quartz like butter. I've observed this from a couple of carvers in Europe, especially uh, my big skull had some damage, and the carver was able, you know, to just cut through the, the quartz and reshape it so that it was back to its old smooth cell. Um, the thing is, is what they claim for the very, very old or ancient ones is that these kind of marks are non-existent. But what you have to understand is, is let's say some civilization created a very, very old skull 5,000 years ago. And then one of these Mesoamerican cultures got a hold of it and looked at it and said, hmm, I don't like this feature. I think we're going to have one of our carvers change it. So therefore, there becomes tool marks put onto the surface of the skull. And then now it's a more modern skull instead of an ancient one. I do not believe that the searching of the tool marks is the best way to identify the age of the skull. And aren't there different size skulls? Uh, I thought I read somewhere that one theory is that the, the more 
life-size ones or more modern ones and the smaller, almost trinket-type ones are, are believed to be the actual ancient skulls? Well, uh, in the in the old skulls, or those which we believe to be old or ancient skulls, they are coming in all different sizes. I mean, the Mitchell Hedges skull, which is considered to be an ancient skull, is an exact duplicate of a human bone skull. It is that size. And there have been also ancient skulls of a smaller size. Size really doesn't seem to matter, even with the new skulls. We've had some that are quite small and yet can profoundly affect people more powerfully than even one that might be ten times its size. So it's not really about the size at all. It's whoever is working with the crystal, how it's being activated, how it's being programmed, who's worked with it, what kind of ceremonies have been done in the present, uh, where did it come from, who programmed it is another consideration. So size and the shape doesn't really have to do with it. It's just that it's in that form and I think it has the potential to awaken, and then we start hearing about all these different phenomena and stories that are happening to people. In, in your research, uh, what are some of the theories floated out there for how these uh, pre-Columbian peoples might have made these? Uh, had they made them and they weren't given to them by, by some other culture or some other race, uh, if they were to construct them themselves, how would they have done it? Because we know how you can do it now. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy enough to make you know, different skull-shaped things now. Just look at the store shelves on Halloween. But, you know, to, to make it back then, how, how would they have been able to pull that off, if at all? Uh, according to some of the carvers that I've spoken to, they say that through, you know, families of carvers, that there were secret techniques that they were familiar with, which they taught to their you know, to the relatives who continued on in the trade, where they were able, without the diamond tip tools, that they could actually carve fairly accurate objects. Uh, the Chinese carvers were supposed to be pretty good, and maybe some carvers in, in Europe as well. Um, as far as the Mesoamerican cultures themselves being able to do this, um, you know, they were carving in a lot of different things, and I think it's like any other creative person, you're going to have some creative people who are really, really super talented and have special abilities. So they may have been able to use more primitive tools uh, in order to carve the skulls in this shape. But I think what's happening is we're getting too caught up in the shape of the skull and not looking at, you know, like its, its history, if we can find out its history and how was it used, if we know how it was used, and also kind of studying more, you know, uh, the energy, the effect that it has on people. Because, um, you know, what basically happens is people always ask the same questions. How was something made? Who made it? Why was it made? And what was the technique to do it? In all cases, we don't always know the answers to all of that. Um, and uh, I think that with the crystal skulls, we have to go on be beyond how they were manufactured and try to understand more, you know, why were they made and why are they affecting people like they are now. Well, I mean, how was it that we first came to discover these? Were there skulls that were just passed along from these ancient times, or, or was it found in an archaeological fashion? The first crystal skulls that were shown to the public was in the 1800s. There was a crystal skull, which is in a museum in Paris right now, that was in a different museum, the Museum of Trocadero. Uh, that came out in the 1870s. It was on display. And then, of course, there was the human-sized uh, crystal skull in the British Museum in London, which is uh, still on display now. Um, but in in the research that I've done, I think that the indigenous people had access to these crystal skulls far beyond the 19th century. It was only during the 19th century 
because the museum started becoming interested in ancient antiquities that we became aware of these crystal skulls that they existed. But when you talk to indigenous people, they'll say, well, we've been guarding them for a long time. That's if they will speak to you. Because the problem is when the Europeans came to the Americas, and this is primarily where most of the crystal skulls have seemed to come from, from like uh, uh, Mexico, Central America, maybe in the uh, U.S. itself, uh, the Europeans literally were stealing anything of value and taking it back with them as uh, trophies and uh, treasures. And so the indigenous people quickly learned that when these Europeans, these strangers came to their land, that when they, they would not discuss with them their sacred tools. So what it means is that there could possibly be many hundreds or thousands of other crystal skulls that we have no idea whatsoever that are in the hands of these people who for their prophecies are waiting from a certain period of time. But to the general public, we first became aware of the crystal skulls in the 18th century. When I talked to Carver and Hitler Oberstein in Germany, he did confirm for me that in the 1800s, the, the carvers there who are probably one of the most sophisticated carvers in the world, they were carving crystal skulls. And the reason they were doing it, it was a challenge for them to try to duplicate a human bone skull, because that's not so easy to do, especially without the diamond tip tools that they didn't have at that time. So in the modern age of the crystal skulls, it really starts in the 1800s. And then in the beginning of the 1900s, there were a number of crystal skulls that came out into the public's eye. The Mitchell Hedges crystal skull was found in 1924. Uh, there was the Mayan crystal skull that Mr. Nasserino had that also came out in the 1920s. The Amethyst crystal skull that I saw, according to the Mayan shaman who brought it to America, also in the 1920s. Another one by the name of E.T., which is a smoky quartz, human-sized skull, but it has kind of an E.T. shape to it, which I saw, oh, I think it was in the late uh, 1990s or 2000 in California. That one came out in 1906. A family dug it on its property in Guatemala. So that's basically how the crystal skulls started. And now um, with the movie coming out, it's going to the next level, although there are thousands of crystal skulls for sale on eBay. Many people are drawn now. They want to have their own skull. When I first started in the 1980s, this was not what was going on. It didn't start until the 1990s. And it just kind of happened on its own uh, magically. All of a sudden, people wanted to have crystal skulls. So now I think we're entering in a new phase where through the Indiana Jones film and all the new documentaries that are coming out and the new books and the new websites, uh, more people are getting more curious. And uh, now we have to see what's going to happen next. It's really, it's an unknown. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, that we talked earlier in this interview saying how, you know, even the newer skulls and the ones that are being manufactured now are exhibiting some of this phenomena. And we're hearing a lot of, you know, positivity and light and, and good things resulting from them. But when you were talking about the, the Mitchell Hedges skull, isn't that sometimes referred to as the skull of doom? Yes, it has been referred to it in that way. But um, Anna Mitchell Hedges, when she was alive, that was the daughter of F.A. Mitchell Hedges, who led the expedition to find that. Um, she basically said that, you know, that was something that her father did and what really she was talking, what they were talking about with the Skull of Doom is that um, people could not understand, like, you know, the strong energies that were around the skull. It was kind of, it can be kind of frightening for people, you know, when you're around something and it's having this strange phenomenon around it. But really, 
Uh, this crystal skull has always been a healing skull. It has been renamed now by the new uh, guardian, the new caretaker, Bill Holman, the Mitchell Hedges Crystal Skull of Love. Now, what I can uh, share with your audience is, uh, although I've had an opportunity to be with that crystal skull, until March, I never really had a chance where there weren't other people around that I could just sit with it privately and see what happened to me. And what I can describe for you is, is as you said in my intro, I've met a lot of crystal skulls in my travels, a lot of new ones, some of the very old ones. But I have to uh, be honest with you. When I was sitting in the presence of this one, and I was not allowed to touch it, I was just down in front of it. I had three of my own personal skulls with me, and I was meditating with some music. It was the most powerful, the most wonderful, the most beautiful, the most excellent, the most uh, peaceful, the most calm, the most powerful, and every other most word that you could ever think of. It was so wonderful. I could have stayed there forever. But unfortunately, the rest of the people that were with me, we had to go eat. So I could only do it for 20 minutes. But having that experience around it, when people call it the skull of doom, really, it has nothing to do with it at all. Generally, what I see that happens is when there's an object or a phenomenon that we don't understand or that frightens people, primarily because people don't want to look at the paranormal aspects of what's going on around these objects, then they're going to use derogatory words to describe it because they were afraid of it. Also, another story I heard related to the Mitchell Headless Skull. This was told by Frank Dorlin, who had this crystal skull for research for a number of years in the 1970s. He actually was the person who made the arrangement for the Mitchell Headless Skull to go to Hewlett-Packard for research. Actually, today I received an email from one of the researchers who was there. I'm going to try to see if I can interview him, because there would be a scientist looking at this you know, object that uh, puzzled them. I, I think the best way to phrase it, though, would just be that, you know, when there's something that people don't understand, they always will give some kind of a derogatory name to it. For me, the Mitchell Hedges skull is the skull of life and the skull of love. It's a skull that's going to help people to really find uh, peace inside of themselves. And because I, I believe so much in that skull, uh, we've actually made arrangements at certain times to work with Bill Holman, that's my, myself and my partner, Blue Air Rainbow, who's in Holland, with Bill and his partner, Donna. We'll be going to Italy in July. That'll be the first time the four of us will be working together. And I will be very proud and honored to be involved in such an event because that skull, it had such a powerful effect on me when I did the meditation. So I can only imagine how it's going to help so many other people. Well, I mean, I can imagine that if... if what your research is telling us and, and what the, the stories that we've heard are true and that these were, you know, used by the Mayans or the Aztecs or any pre-Columbian societies uh, as part of their worship, that, you know, it wasn't something that the common person in that civilization had access to. It would be something that the shamans would, would hold on to and only bring out for ritual and ceremony. Is, is that what you've, you've found? Yes, that's my understanding, that it was used in ceremony and the priest or the shamans would be the ones who are the guardians and the protectors of it. Uh, possibly there could have been, you know, a place where the people could come and sit and be in the presence of the skulls, but they were always watched over or guarded because they were considered to be very sacred tools. But they could have been brought out for healing. You know, if somebody was, was ill, they could bring it to them for, for healing purposes. Yes, and that's still going on today. I'll give you two quick stories of profound healings that happened to two guardians of ancient skulls. The 
amethyst gold that I saw. That was my first one. Uh, one of the guardians, his name was El Ramirez, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But what happened to Mr. Ramirez was there was a blood vessel in his brain that was not growing correctly. And so what they did is uh, they told him, if we have to do a surgery on you, there's a very good likelihood because of your age, it was probably in the 60s or 70s, that uh, you may become like a vegetable. You may have great difficulty uh, functioning properly like a normal human being. But he said, okay, I still go ahead and, and do the surgery. And what happened is exactly what the doctor said. He could barely think, he could uh, barely speak, move his body, etc. But anyway, he was able to communicate to his family to put him on the ground and put the amethyst crystal skull, which, by the way, is called today Ami, which means friend. That's the name that's used for this specific skull. And they put the back of his head to the back of the skull's head, and all he did was think to himself, I will be perfectly well, I will be healed, I will be perfectly well. And within two to three months, he completely recovered. And the doctor said it's a miracle because they had no way to explain how that could possibly happen. I mentioned before a crystal skull by the name of E.T. This is the uh, large smoky quartz skull. This name was given by Yoka van Dieten, who is the caretaker of this crystal skull. She lives in Holland. Uh, I was fortunate to see this crystal skull with Yoki at the first time that she had the opportunity to see it and then she gave me permission to work with it before I had to go back. This was in uh, Los Angeles, California. The skull came to a crystal, crystal store there through the people that had it in the Guatemala area. And anyway, eventually she came and picked the skull up, and then she went to Australia with her daughter to vacation. While she was in Australia, she had terrible headaches, terrible headaches, kept her in bed. So she went to the hospital, and they took, uh, you know, an x-ray of her head to see what was going on. And then as she was getting up ready to leave, they asked her, where do you think you're going? Oh, I feel fine. I'm going to go home. No, you're not. You have the largest brain tumor in a person's head we've ever seen who has the ability to walk around. You need surgery right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any insurance? No, I'm sorry, I don't. Which country do you live in? Well, at this time, she was living in Canada. Canada at that time had socialized medicine. So they said, okay, well, you should go back to Canada and find a brain surgeon in order to remove the tumor. So what happened is first she worked with a Philippine healer that was in America and California, and then he said, now you have to go to a surgeon to finish this and let God work through the surgeon's hands. So what happened is she went to a surgeon in Canada in Vancouver, one of the best in the world, and he did two major brain surgeries on her. And this surgeon still has the tumor in the glass jar because other doctors do not believe that this case actually happened. They told her if she didn't die, the worst-case scenario is she would be paralyzed on one part of her body or she would lose the sight in one of her eyes. She says that during these surgeries, she had what she called an out-of-body experience. And then what happened is she went to Switzerland to recuperate, and she was able to completely recover. She believes that because this crystal skull came into her life, that is the reason why she was able to heal herself of the tumor. As a matter of fact, while she was resting in Switzerland, there was a nurse that came and was looking at her crystal skull, and the nurse said to her, do you see there's a tumor inside of your crystal skull? So this is a pretty unique story. When she went back to have her skull re-x-rayed after the surgery, it had completely mended and she has had no uh, side effects as a result of having this. So she believes the crystal skull came into her life to 
to help her go through this crisis. So these are just two off the top of my head examples of what happens around the crystal skulls re related to healing, which is a common thing. Oh, that, that's amazing. Uh, you would mentioned earlier in the, in, in the interview, you said that the how these skulls are made isn't as important as the why. Uh, but one thing I do want to try to get into here a little bit is the, is the who, um, at least in your beliefs. Do you think that they're extraterrestrial? Do you think that it's, you know, like you said, maybe Atlantean? Do you think that there's some sort of otherworldly influence to these skulls? Okay, I'm going to speak from soul memory on this question. Okay. What soul memory means is that I cannot prove what I'm about to say, but I have images in my mind that will not go away that answer this question. So I'm just going to beg that your audience will just say, okay, let's just pretend maybe this could be true, and let's just listen and see what might be possible. I most definitely have a very strong memory of myself during the time of Atlantis of walking in the temples and in these temples there were crystal skulls so for me when uh, Carol Wilson Davis was channeling the Mitchell Hedges skull and was speaking about that maybe it came from the great crystal of Atlantis I know within myself when I hear that I just feel very strongly that's absolutely correct now in our first book Mystery of the Crystal Skulls Revealed we talked to another channel who was in California at the time and he told us all kinds of really amazing things. Again, cannot be proven, but add some uh, background information about the idea of Atlantis. He said that what happened is, during the time of Atlantis, there were uh, 12 healing temples, and then uh, in each healing temple there was a crystal skull, and then there was a 13th crystal skull, which united the other 12. This comes up in the prophecies from say in the Native American, they talk about 13 crystal skulls, one surrounded by 12. So uh, apparently what happened during this period of time is uh, the Atlanteans had some technology, he said, that was given by the Pleiadians, which was able to take a human bone skull and through the process of the mind, convert it into quartz crystal. And uh, in particular, related to the Mitchell-Hedges skull, you know, they talk about that maybe this was the actual crystallization of a bone skull of an Atlantean priestess who was honored and respected. So this is one of the theories. Now, also the Mayans, one of the few indigenous people who will talk about the crystal skulls, I've heard them talking about that the crystal skulls came from Atlantis, that when Atlantis was destroyed, they took their sacred tools and they spread them throughout the world, and quite a number of their sacred tools were brought into the Yucatan area, which was a colony of Atlantis, and then spread throughout Mexico and Central America. Okay, as far as the possibility of extraterrestrials bringing the crystal skulls, um, it reminds me of uh, two things. Number one, when F.R. Nick Nasserino was leading a research project to the Mitchell Hedges skull, that he and my other co-author, Sandra Bone, they were the co-authors for Mystery of the Crystal Skulls Revealed, what they were doing is they were um, photo, uh, videotaping what was happening around the skull. And what happened was they were able to take pictures and video of UFOs appearing inside of that crystal skull. Now, how is that possible? What does that mean? Well, my theory is, and, and you are already touched on this, is that possibly the crystal skulls work like video cameras, that they are able to record everything that goes on around it 
And when it's activated in, the, in a certain way through color, light, sound, music, whatever it is that activates them, they start to replay these images that they recorded. So could it have been that the Mitchell Hedges skull was replaying images of UFOs that were around it, either that they were visiting the Earth or that possibly the crystal skulls came from the extraterrestrials? Again, going back to the indigenous people, they will talk about that some of these skulls were gifts from the gods, that they were given these gifts in order to help them to, um, to grow spiritually, to grow as, as a people, uh, to become more consciously aware of life and these other realities which we study in the paranormal. So from the research that we've done, talking with people, working with other people who have past life memories, etc., uh, we believe that some skulls were brought here by extraterrestrials, some skulls were created in advanced civilizations such as Atlantis, and I'll throw one more thing out at the people listening, the hollow earth theory. This has also come up around the crystal skulls. What is the hollow earth theory? Well, the hollow earth theory basically states that, that our planet is not solid, it does not have a molten core, there is actually a tiny sun that's at the very center, and that there are people who live on the inside surface as well as we who live on the outside surface. The aurora borealis that is seen, the northern lights, what that is is there's an opening, which you can find this opening on the Internet. If you look on the hollow earth, I've seen on the Internet where there are people who show a picture of the earth. with It looks like a light that's coming out of a hole at, the, at what we would call the North Pole. Okay, so that's the theory. Anyway, in working again with this channel, Michael Kent, he talked about that the original set of 13 skulls, that they originally came to these people that live in the inner surface of the Earth, and that what they did is eventually they brought them to the outer surface of the Earth, and that they had encoded their uh, genetics and entire wisdom and knowledge of their race, and that many of the races that live on the inner Earth are galactic or extraterrestrial races. So I think no matter... In which direction we go, we're going to wind up somehow, because uh, shortly I'm going to be leaving for a conference in Brazil, and I'm going to be discussing these very theories there about the connections between the crystal skulls and the UFOs. I really do believe that some of the crystal skulls, maybe which we know today, were gifts of the gods to help humanity, and maybe even were brought to help us now during this period of time so that we can create world peace. I always go back to world peace. That, to me, is what the crystal skulls are about. And that's, it's, in your belief, that's the why they exist, is to, to bring about this world peace. Uh, how, how is that going to happen, do you think? Well, what the crystal skulls are basically doing right now is when a person is drawn to have an experience with one, it's kind of mirroring back to them aspects of who they are which they may not even be aware of. For example... It might mirror back to the person some of their creative talents or skills. It might help a person to open up to their spiritual or psychic gifts. Um, sometimes what happens with the crystal skull, which is part of the healing, is it mirror, mirrors back to the person the things inside of them that are causing great grief or pain or misery that they're holding on to, which they don't know how to get rid of, which the energy of the skull literally pulls out and kicks out of them. So this is what I think they're doing for right now. However, what I also feel is going on, again, it's kind of a crazy theory, but I've talked to a lot of people and they, they agree with this, who feel a strong affinity for the skulls, is they are like telepathic, telepathically calling to people 
who have worked with them in other lifetimes because encoded in their DNA in some way is some kind of specific, let's say, energy or program that works with the crystal skulls that helps that person to be able to access and activate them as well as to receive their information. So there are some people I meet who say, well, well, I use my case. I have a vision of a totally clear blue skull. It's in South America. It's in Peru. I've gone there three times looking for it. I've seen it in my vision when I've been in Peru, but I haven't seen it physically. I know it exists, and I know that there will be a time eventually that it will come out. So it's like there are other people who tell me, well, I see a gold skull, I see a green skull, I see a purple skull. So I think what, what's happening right now is through the movie, through the new documentaries, through the books, through the Internet, people are becoming more exposed to the crystal skulls. They're hearing about what might be possible with them. And what's happening is, is new ones are getting ready to come out. And in a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain moment, when a specific set of these skulls come together, as the legends say, maybe it's the 13 skulls, maybe it's multiple sets of 13 skulls that will all come together simultaneously in different places in the world. Somehow, when they come together, they're going to activate or trigger something on the planet that's going to wake people up, and it's going to be like the 100th monkey effect that Ken Keyes wrote about a long time ago. The 100th monkey effect that he discussed was they did an experiment with these Japanese monkeys, where they taught, them, taught a few monkeys how to wash their sweet potato so it would taste better instead of being in the dirt. And after a certain amount of the monkeys learned how to do this, all of a sudden, magically, all the monkeys on all the islands knew how to wash their sweet potato. So what Ken Keyes was saying in his book is when a certain number of people get the consciousness of world peace, then the entire civilization of humanity miraculously in the next minute, when that person becomes... The, the 100th person to realize that, and then there can be world peace. I think the Crystal Skulls is a catalyst that's going to help to awaken this. I mean, if the Mitchell Hedges Skull, which is going to be traveling a lot now with Mr. Holman, has the energy, as I experienced, which was a very peaceful, calm energy, and it can start changing people like that, then I believe the Crystal Skulls become a catalyst that awake up this very strong, loving energy that's inside of every human being. And that's what it's going to take for there to be world peace. Many people might say, well, you know, Joshua, how, how is it possible? We have so many problems, so many difficulties between different religions, different countries, you know, between men and women, what, whatever, between different races. How, how could, as the Mayans say, maybe in 2012 or 2013, in only four or five years, could, could everything change? Well, it's a, it's a shift in consciousness, and I have a feeling the crystal skulls are involved in this. And this is why maybe, you know, I heard Lucas was the one who really wanted to have the crystal skulls in the film. Maybe they were talking with Lucas, and he just felt, yeah, they would make a, a, a good object for Indy to go chase because there's a lot of strange things that go on around them. Well, so I, I do agree with... with uh your belief that uh, it'll help ignite world peace. I think that whatever this event that's supposed to happen uh, due to the Mayan calendar running out on December 21st, 2012, mm -hmm. I think that if, if these skulls, the 13 skulls, are involved in this event, and they will be part of whatever this is that's going to change the way that everybody thinks, uh, a shift in global consciousness. But the question is, are we going to be able, if there are 13 skulls that need to be 
brought together for this purpose. Would we be able to know where they are? Uh, would we be able to know which ones were the authentic ones that could be part of this? Or do you think that you know maybe those who have carried this on from the Mayan times actually know, and they'll just bring them all out to the forefront by, by 2012? My feeling is this, and again, I don't know, I can't really prove this, but as you asked the question, it was like my voice that talks to me was answering. I think it's just going to happen by itself. That's the only way I can, how I can answer. I don't think that people are going to have to go out and find the skulls. I also don't believe if there is, as was talked about in the book, Mystery of the Crystal Skulls by Morton and Thomas, who were able to interview a lot of the indigenous people, if there is an original set of 13, I, I don't believe that there's anything that we can do to speed it up, to try to make it go faster, to try to find the skulls themselves. I believe that this is a preordained event, and it will just happen on its own. The people who have the skull may not even know that they're involved in this. They just one day will feel they have to go somewhere, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, what was that movie by James Redfield, Celestian Prophecy? In that film, he was kind of showing, well, also in his book, too, that there were people who just had this kind of intuition or feeling to go somewhere and to do something, and they didn't know why. This is the kind of sense I get about the gathering. It's the same thing like I was reading about Spielberg's movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, it was these people who had contact with extraterrestrials, and they all had to go to Devil's tower and they didn't know why they had to go there i think it's this kind of thing the skulls are with the right people right now and when it's the right time they just come together and uh, the people won't know why they're being drawn to a certain place and and it will be like a magical moment so really what's happening right now then if this indeed is what could happen is all the new skulls that are coming out now all the ancient skulls that are out now which may or may not be part of these 13 they are preparing people for something. They are getting people used to that crystal skulls exist. They are getting people used to the idea that there could be healing abilities around the skulls, that they could help people to be positive. Like, for example, when we had our festival in Hungary last year, well, I was being funny, but, you know, I just asked if people came. There were like 600 people in Hungary, and many of them had never heard of crystal skulls before. I said, how many people here... Uh, uh, if, you know, came here today to be exposed to the crystal skulls, want to stay if your life is going to be forever changed and you're going to be more happy. Is there anyone who, who doesn't want to stay to have that happen? And, of course, nobody put their hand up to say they wanted to leave. Okay. Um, now, one of the things, though, that I, I do have to say is the crystal skulls, I believe, are recording everything that goes on around them. So, so far... You know, I'm a proponent that they have a very pos positive effect on people, that they have a positive purpose. However, there have been some crystal skulls that maybe they were misused by one of the Mesoamerican cultures, like uh, some psychics have seen the skulls were used in sacrifices. Because the crystal itself is picking up the intensity of the energies around them, there is the possibility that there could also be some crystal skulls who have picked up not-so-nice energies around them. For example, there was one crystal skull that we saw in Los Angeles that came out of Europe, and there was this man who, you know, he finds these kind of things, and he, he wanted to sell it. And my partner sat with the skull. She became violently sick with it, and uh, we had to immediately remove it from her presence. So 
the thing is, it's it's like anything else. God gives us all these wonderful things for humanity to use so that we can live in peace with each other. But different people have different ideas or different objectives how they want to use these tools. I believe that the original set of skulls or most of the ancient skulls have internally somehow that was created a protection system so they cannot be misused. I believe that their purpose is to help humanity to awaken to this peaceful energy. But there are other skulls, could be some new skulls too, where maybe somebody has some other motives. The skull is picking up a different kind of energy, can have that effect. What generally happens is when someone has, let's say, a detrimental effect around one, then they will say, for all the crystal skulls now, you should not be involved because, you know, their energy might not be good for you. Or we have some archaeologists who are claiming all the crystal skulls that are out there, they're all fakes. None of them are ancient ones. And they have not done any research about the energy fields that are around them. They're just looking at the surface. You know, I don't, I don't want to insult these people who are very professional people, but I think that what has to happen is there has to be a marriage between science and the paranormal, between people who are doing a serious research and professional people, and really try to find a way to do some tests so that we can really try to understand, you know, why are all these things going around the crystal skulls? Why are more people interested? Why now are they coming out into the public? There's a reason for this. There's a higher reason for this. I feel it in the depths of my soul. Whether I can fully explain what's happening or not, you know, I can only give proposals. But uh, it's getting very interesting, definitely. Well, you mentioned how um, some archaeologists are claiming that there are only 19th century skulls. And I just read something online earlier today where... Uh, I believe it was the British Museum, they said that they found out that their skull is only from the 19th century and that it's not, you know, Mesoamerican as they originally believed that it was. Uh, is that something that you heard? Is that, you know, I think it was an AP story, but... Yes, I, went, I was in the British Museum last September, and they had the what they're calling the British Museum crystal skull on display, and on the plaque that's sitting behind it, they said the skull is a fake, that it was carved... They believe it was carved possibly by someone in either Oberstein or Germany, or it was made in the 1800s. So they do not think that it's uh, older than that. However, what I will tell you is, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I would say about four years ago, I think it was in 2004, the uh, British Museum Crystal Skull was sitting at the Museum of Mankind, which is like a branch of the British Museum, but it's in another location in London. And what they did in, it was the spring and the early summer, they allowed people every Tuesday afternoon to come and they could see that crystal skull in its glass case. Because the thing was, the museum took the skull off display. And many people were not happy with that. They kept asking, when is it coming back on display? They couldn't understand why it was one of their most popular exhibits when they have all these other amazing things there from many different civilizations. I mean, you could spend a whole week at the British Museum and still not see everything that's there. It's really huge. And that doesn't include what they have in storage that you don't know about. So anyway, we went to uh, the Museum of Mankind, and um, after everyone left, we stayed, and uh, the custodian there, Bill Hamill was his name, he lifted the glass case, and he allowed us to touch the skull. Now, what was very interesting was my wife, or ex-wife now, uh, Blue Air Rainbow, but she was my wife at that time, she went into an altered state of consciousness. 
And she was able to remember that crystal skull being used by the Mayans, and she came up with a date of around 1440 or 1450 A.D. And she remembers very powerfully uh, being a male priest that worked with the crystal skull at that time. So around the British Museum skull, of course, you're going to have different theories, different ideas about it. Um, again, if we get too much caught up in uh, how old they are and how they were made, then I think that we lose what they're what they're really about. I mean, they are a mystery. There is strange things going on around them, and um, the best way to learn about them is to really do the research with them. They want this research to be done. Again, this presupposes they can speak, but I'm looking at my big skull, and he's saying definitely tell them, Dad, we want to be researched. We want people to understand us. Uh, we're, you know, here to really help people, and, they, and uh, the skulls that I have, the message that they told me was, is they said, if someone comes and says they want to hold me, you cannot say no. That was the message they told me. So that's basically what I do when I travel. I try to allow people to have the chance to hold them and have their direct experience. Now, this is a key thing. Some people who are listening might say, okay, well, Joshua sounds like, you know, he's a nice guy, reasonable guy. He's worked hard on this, you know. He's not trying to convince people. He's just trying to give information to let people decide what they believe. But the real key is, if people are intrigued by the crystal skulls, try to have your own experience. It's like Grandfather Two Bear, who was a Native American elder I interviewed, said to me, he said, you know, the, the crystal skulls are very important for humanity, but a person really won't understand it until they're having their own direct experience with one, until they're holding it, till they see what it's about. So there are so many crystal skulls out there now. If somebody really wants to try to find one, I'm sure that there's a way they can do it. Or also through our website, we have the ability to help people to even get their own crystal skull. So, well, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned before that a lot of these newer skulls, even ones made today, can exhibit this phenomena. So do you think, you know, with an eye toward crystal skulls fostering in an era of world peace, do you think that it would be beneficial to, to everybody to have contact with them and at least have the opportunity to, to be in the presence of one? Uh, this is a very good question, and my experience has been is not everyone is going to have necessarily a strong connection with a quartz crystal skull. Okay. For example, there are some people I've met who prefer other gemstones because they are covering skulls in other gemstones, and they are calling those crystal skulls as well. But for me, the crystal skull is the quartz skull. So I don't think necessarily that the crystal skulls are right for everyone. I think the way uh, to make a decision about it is if someone says, there's something about this. I don't know what it is. I hear this all the time. People that say, you know, I never heard about crystal skulls before, and then I was listening to somebody on the radio, or I was reading a book or an article, or I saw something on TV, and I'm sure this is going to happen when they have the Indiana Jones film too. A bunch of people are just going to say, I have to find out more about that. I think if a person feels that, that what they should try to do is see how they can either get their own skull or if there's somebody traveling. You know, when I first started, there were not so many people who were publicly speaking and traveling about crystal skulls. But now there's a lot more people that are going out there and doing it. So, uh, it, for example, in America, you know, we have a, a couple of people who have old skulls that are traveling with them, Mr. Holman with the Mitchell Hedges skull, Joanne Parks with Max. We have uh, Sherry Whitfield with Synergy. Uh, we have Dale Walker who has a couple of different skulls. 
so right there are, are four people who are working with crystal skulls that I all believe to be quite old that are traveling around that people do have a chance. And, the, and of course, uh, I think my, my life and my schedule is going to get much more busy too after the film comes out because uh, we're getting more invitations. So I think this is the key. But it's not for everyone. So, you know, some people may be completely turned off by it or what I found is there's some people who are afraid of skulls because in a former lifetime they were sacrificed with crystal skulls when they were misused and not honor for the true way to work with. So you see all kinds of things. Basically what happens is a person's response is black or white. They really are excited, they feel a connection, or they want to have nothing to do with it. There's very few that are neutral. Well, I'm going to either try to get my hands on one or get into the presence of one, and I'll, I'll report to you whatever experience I have. Uh, we've been told by our science advisor, Matt Moniz, that a, a friend of ours, Tom D'Agostino, actually has one. So we're going to see if uh, maybe we can just be in the same room as his and, and see if we get anything. But um, you mentioned the movie now, and I, I have to ask you, as, as a researcher and, and someone who calls himself Illinois Shapiro, uh, have you actually gone out and, and captured these skulls, you know, the same way Indiana Jones would in the film, or, or have you come about them through, uh, you know, making contacts with people that have had them, purchasing them from collectors, anything like that? Most of my experience has been that I have traveled to where other people have crystal skulls that could be quite old. However, there is uh, three trips that I've made to Peru where I had a personal vision of one that's like sky blue. Like, if you look at... Uh, you know, these bottles of natural water in the bottom, it's kind of like a sky blue color, transparent. This is what I saw in my mind's eye. Now, it's very interesting because this lady, Carol Wilson Davis, when she was interviewed for the BBC documentary that they did, uh, she did a uh, session with the Mitchell Hedges Skull. And when she was in trance, she said, high up in the Andes Mountains will be found a skull that is blue. And this is exactly where I was led to go. I went up into, well, most people in Peru uh, know Peru for like Cusco, Machu Picchu, Lake Titicaca, these kinds of things, but they're not so familiar with the northern part of Peru. In the northern part of Peru exists the pre-Inca cultures. In particular, I was very connected with the Mochicas, which I was told lived around the time maybe uh, Christ, about 200 to 400 A.D. And I was led and I was guided to make a connection with, uh, the Lord of Sipan. Sipan was an uh, ancient city, and there was supposed to be a ruler there that was discovered right around the Harmonic Convergence, which was in 1987. And they actually had his artifacts and, and his bones and everything were in a large museum in Lima. But now it's in uh, Sipan in the northern part of Peru. And I had a very interesting experience around the Lord of Sipan. What happened was, is I is I don't know why I asked this. I can't remember why I asked this, but I just felt we needed to do a meditation around the bones of the Lord of Sipan. And I had the big crystal skull with me at this time, Portal de Luz. And so what we did is we did this meditation, and don't ask me what I did because I was doing all kinds of strange things. And then I let everyone touch the crystal skull after we did the meditation, and they all felt a very, very strong energy. Anyway, when I was looking for the blue skull, in Peru, the spirit of the Lord of Sipan was around me. When I went to Peru the last time with uh, Blue Air Rainbow in 2002, she uh, was able to remember that the Lord of Sipan was her father in the past life. Again, I'm just telling the story, and, and the listeners can decide if it's uh, reasonable or not. Mm -hmm. And she 
that in that lifetime I was her husband and the Lord of Sipan had married us. And what happened to me is when I went high up into the Andes Mountains, where there was a sacred lagoon, where they still do ceremonies with people there to cleanse them of negative energy, speaking in the ancient languages, I had visions that in this area that's where that blue skull would be found. And when I went with Blue Owl Rainbow in 2002, she also saw the skull. And we actually saw, uh, we went to a certain area where we saw and felt that because this area at one time was part of what we call Lemuria. Lemuria was a large island in the, um, what is it, the Pacific Ocean, that when Lemuria sank, then the Andes Mountains rose in Peru. That's what we believe. Um, she also felt there was a, like a temple there from uh, in Lemuria, and we both had the same vision that we saw in this circular room where people could come and spend time with the crystal skulls. There were in glass cases on the wall, and anybody could come and just meditate or spend time with the crystal skulls. So this is the only time that where I've been inspired that I have to go to a place to look for a specific skull. Whether this blue skull exists or not, I can't say. I see it in my mind's eye. I feel it around me. Um, whether I will find it or not, I don't know, but I definitely believe that it does exist, and I probably will keep looking for it until it decides it's time to come out. But one of the things that I felt with this skull was is that it is an intelligent being that will decide on its own when it's time for it to come out, and it, it doesn't matter how many times I go there, even if I'm close to where it may be, if it doesn't want to show itself, then it won't show itself. But primarily what I've been doing mostly is, you know, more like a writer, you know, interviewing people and asking questions and traveling all over the world and talking to different people and trying to put together all these different pieces. Because, you know, even in the interview we've had today, we've been all over the place with many different aspects connected to crystal skulls, from UFOs to ancient civilizations to healing. I mean, it's amazing. All we're talking about is a piece of quartz crystal that's in the shape of a skull, but yet it's such a sophisticated topic, and, and I feel like it would take me many lifetimes to really understand what are we really dealing with here. Well, we hope certainly that you continue to do this research and that you do find that, that blue skull when it's ready to come out and that you keep us up to date on, on all your studies and all your journeys and all your research. Uh, everybody can go to your website, whoisjoshuashapiro.com, uh, and they can keep track with uh, all your research. Yeah, I saw that you have a blog there. Uh, you have a store where you can purchase your books and, and different crystal skull merchandise and, and even get a hold of some skulls themselves. Uh, is that going to be like the central point for all of your research and all of your, uh, all your announcements and events? Yes. We recently had um, a gentleman, Jim Gross, who has been helping us to get us up to speed on the latest uh, advances and services on the Internet. And so that will become the main website, whoisjoshuashapiro.com. We're going to be putting, like, for example, when I go to Brazil, I'm going to be sending reports to the, the lady who's in charge of the blog, and she will be posting my reports of what's happening to me. And I'm going to continue to do that as I travel, you know, because we'll be going to Italy with the Mitchell Hedges Go. And every time we go, there's always something unusual and fantastic that happens. So I kind of feel that... My work as a crystal skull explorer is to share with people the most exciting and interesting things that are going on around the crystal skulls. And the other thing, too, that we are, we are working on, which I'll just briefly mention, is we also have our own feature film, too. And I'm in discussion with a company here in Chicago uh, to tell 
uh, a different kind of story than what people will see in the Indiana Jones film, but something that will really show to people exactly all these kinds of things that we've been talking about. So we actually have actually a script done. So that's another key project, too, that probably we will report the progress of. Or if any of your listeners have contacts for something like this, of course, they should feel free to contact us. We're always open to receive from people their stories. We've got a group of helpers now to answer people's questions. So in any way that we can help, that's what we're here to do. All right, well, we thank you for your time tonight, and uh, good luck with everything in Brazil and in all your upcoming speaking engagements. I know you're going to just have, like you said, have a crazy life over the next couple of weeks, and, and hopefully we can get the word out to people more about these crystal skulls. And, and hopefully you're right. Hopefully it will bring wor- world peace about. I hope so. And uh, it, if it does, then you know we have whoever it is that brought them to us to thank for it. Exactly. And we thank you, Joshua, for joining us. Uh, Joshua Illinois Shapiro, check out his website, who is joshuashapiro.com and stay up to date with everything. Thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you the best of luck in all your travels in the future. Okay, thank you. A pleasure to be here. All right, well, that was definitely a fascinating discussion, Matt. We learned, I, I learned quite a bit, and for someone such as yourself that hadn't really known that much about crystal skulls, I mean, what's your take on them now, hearing all that uh, Joshua had to say? As far as my belief in their powers? And sure. Well, I don't know if I believe in all their powers and whatnot, their healing powers uh, it's possible that they do hold some sort of energy and I guess they are of course quartz um, but I had no idea that there was that many theories behind their origin yeah as far as like the, the hollow earth theory I, I'd never heard of um, I, I did hear of the the extraterrestrial mm-hmm. um, but their ties to Atlantis I wasn't really too familiar with so well, I mean, wh- what do you think do you think that maybe um, some of the healing uh, powers that they might have could be somewhat psychosomatic where, you know, if you expect them to have this type of healing ability, then sure, that's what you're going to get out of it. Saying these uh, crystal crystal scars are a big uh, sugar pill? Maybe. Physically. I'm just saying it's, it's a possibility. It is possible. I mean, to this day, how many people go and uh, go to faith healers and things like that mm-hmm. and they see outstanding results. I'm not saying faith healers are full of crap, but... <laughs> yeah, you're just saying it works for some people yeah. and not for others. And Well, I mean, I guess, you know, being faith healers, if you don't have the faith, it's not going to work for you. That's true. Now, in terms of, you know, crystal skulls and, and what they can bring to the world, I mean, if this whole thing is going to go down in 2012 and, you know, whatever's going to happen, happens... I think it's highly possible that, that crystal, skull, crystal skulls are involved with all of that. Um, do you want to have one in your possession come December 21st, 2012? Uh, do, do you want to have one in your hands just in case? Well, if I have one, um, aren't they all supposed to be together? Well, I mean, 13 of them. We don't know oh. if they're the original 13. Okay. Because if you want, I'll go on. I know your birthday's coming up. I'll go on eBay sure. and try and track one down for you. I know the only skull that you currently have in your possession is, is what, a giant ashtray or a candle holder yeah. or something? Yeah. So, I mean, this one might be a little it bit would, nicer. It would be cool to have. Yeah. I might be at D'Agostino's house. <laughs> That's a good idea. We'll, we'll all hang out. If the world is going to end, at least you can have some Arlene's brownies yeah. before you go. So, that all works out. Well, we would like definitely like to find out your thoughts and theories on crystal skulls. And since we couldn't take your calls in this edition of Spooky South Coast... Um, because, of course, the Red Sox decided to play a, a doubleheader, and therefore we were 
podcast only. But uh, if you would like to share your thoughts and theories, uh, you can email us at spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. We also have a little bit of a contest going on tonight. We were supposed to be taking calls with Indiana Jones trivia uh, to, to give out two pairs of tickets to see Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at Flagship Cinemas in New Bedford. But, you know, since we can't take phone calls because we're not on the air live, I guess we'll have to go with the next best route. So the first uh, two people to email me uh, email us at spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com uh, with the answer to these trivia questions that we're going to give. Uh, they will receive the tickets. Now, we ask that you please live uh, you know, in the south coast of Massachusetts area because we want these tickets to go to somebody who will actually use them. Uh, Flagship was definitely very generous uh, in, in donating these to us, and we're, we're hoping that we can work with them on some future contests for other movies of interest to our audience that come out later on. Uh, but please, you know, Make sure that you can get to Flagship Cinemas in New Bedford if you try to win them. You don't have to go any specific day or time. Uh, just what you'll do is we'll take your name and we'll give it to the theater and you'll be put on a list and you and a guest will get in to see Indiana Jones for free uh, when you go. Here, here's a real simple one that shouldn't be too hard to find out. What is Indiana Jones' actual name? Not the actor who plays him, but the character. What is his actual name and how did he become known as Indiana Jones, it's a two-part question. That's a good one. You have to answer both parts in order in order to win. What item was Indiana Jones chasing after when he first received his trademark fedora, whip, and that little scar across his chin? They all happened chasing after the same item. Uh, what was that item? If you can name either, if you can answer either of those two questions, email me spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. The first two people with the right answer and, and put the town where you live to I need your full name and I need the town where you live and uh, we will make you the winner of a pair of tickets to see Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull of course Flagship Cinema's New Bedford 12 is located at Fieldstone Marketplace at 500 Kings Highway in New Bedford uh, if you'd like to give them a call to find out about movie showtimes 508-985-3000 and you know Matt they have an event coming up uh, actually uh, on June 14th it's a special event, Captain's Comedy Lounge. It'll be happening at 8 p.m. and 10 p.m., uh, featuring headliner Tim Kalen and also uh, Aaron Sire. Tickets are on sale now if you want to go down there and share a few laughs with them with flagship cinemas. Tickets are available at the theater box office. They are $10 a person in advance or $12 a person at the door. For reservations, just give them a call at 508-944-1143. Uh, keep in mind, this will be an R-rated event. If you'd like to find out more about this event or find out movie times, you can go to flagshipcinemas.com. Just a few things we want to let you know about, some upcoming events. Kristen Gartland of Taps and Ghost Hunters. You know her, right, Matt? Kristen, she's I on do. the show quite a bit. Yeah, She's putting together this special uh, charity event along with Seven, which is one of the premier rock bands uh, in the Cape Cod and South Shore area. That was a kid from Married with Children. <laughs> no. Oh. No. I don't know. Maybe they named the band after Maybe. that kid. I don't know. Whatever happened to that kid anyway? Wasn't it just a dream? I think so. I think so. But Seven, the band, is <laughs> is not a dream. They play like one. Uh, Kristen and the band Seven are getting together for a fundraiser Saturday, June 21st, 2008 at the Sons of Italy at 4966 Falmouth Road. That's Route 28 for you and me. In Catuit, Massachusetts. The event kicks off at 7 p.m. 
Uh, tickets are $25, and basically uh, it's going to be a night of food, drink, and music played by the ever-awesome band Seven. There will be several several raffles as well to benefit the Independence House in Hyannis. Uh, the funds will go to help those in domestic violence situations. The Independence House has been helping victims of domestic abuse since 1979. They provide shelter, child care, and counseling. Uh, the volunteers rely on donations to keep the shelter going, so please help win that uphill battle. You can go to their website, independencehouse.com. Uh, but you can, you can also uh, go to 7andkristengartland.eventbrite.com. So that's 7, S-E-V-E-N, and A-N-D. Kristen is K-R-I-S-T-Y-N-G-A-R-T-L-A-N-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. And we'll link that up to SpookySouthCoast.com to make it easier for everybody. But uh, there's going to be some, some pretty interesting raffles going on, including signed Ghost Hunters cast photos, uh, signed merchandise from famous sports teams. Uh, you can win a Boston Militia sweatshirt, T-shirt, and Arbonne basket of goodies. And uh, a prize that probably nobody will want to win, but it's, it's out there anyway. You can win a night of co-hosting Spooky South Coast. Uh, donated that prize to the cause. And we're also going to throw in a T-shirt for the winner, too. Nice. So and that'll be uh, Saturday, June 21st, 7 p.m., the Sons of Italy on Falmouth Road in Catuit, Massachusetts. So definitely make sure you check that out. Also, speaking of Cape Cod, a whole bunch of stuff happening on Cape Cod in the next couple of weeks. On May 30th, 2008, Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society's Cape Cod Community College Paranormal Lecture Series continues with special guest speaker Jeff Belanger. He'll be presenting Weird Massachusetts, his new book. He'll bring you highlights from those pages. He'll take you through the weird, unusual, haunted, and even cursed aspects of the Bay State. From devils and monsters to Native American legends, Massachusetts is full of history, oddities, and folklore that will make you laugh, shake with fright, or simply scratch your head. And usually when I'm around Jeff, I end up scratching my head because I think he has fleas. <laughs> but they come off that flamingo that he carries yeah. with him everywhere. But uh, you definitely want to check this out. Weird Massachusetts with Jeff Belanger. It'll be uh, April 30th, 2008 at Lecture Hall A, uh, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Cape Cod Community College. The cost, of course, is free, but donations are always accepted. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to capers.com, C-A-I-P-R-S.com. You can also check out jeffbelanger.com and ghostvillage.com. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't get a chance to catch Jeff uh, on Beyond Reality, but if you want to download the podcast, just go to beyondreality.planetparanormal.com and they'll have the podcast up there. And uh, I, I can put little plugs in for that show now, Matt, since I, I kind of work there yeah. sometimes. Fill-in host, <laughs> as they say. But uh, uh, definitely want to check Jeff out there. And you can also check him out June 21st, 2008, from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Open Doors uh, store down in Braintree, Massachusetts. He'll be talking about Weird Massachusetts as well as some of the research and evidence of the paranormal he's collected over the years. Uh, the fee for that lecture is $15, but then from 3 to 5 p.m. he'll be doing a free book signing of Weird Massachusetts. You know, the, the book will cost you like 20 bucks, but then the signing aspect of it is free. Right. If you've already purchased it, you can bring it to Jeff and he'll sign it. So That's nice of him. He will. He'll put something a lot nicer than what he put in my copy of the book. <laughs> so it's, it's actually right there, Matt, if you want to. Want to grab it and read it? Sure. Don't read it on the air, though. All right, Matt. Well, you know, weird Massachusetts. It's it's flying off the bookshelves, and it, it's pretty weird. But uh, I know one thing that's even weirder than that.
The weak and weird. All right, our first story comes from the Associated Press, and this was kind of a crazy story when it came across the, the newswire earlier this week. Uh, according to the Vatican, it's okay to believe in aliens. Believing that the universe may contain alien life does not contradict the faith in God, the Vatican's chief astronomer said in an interview published Tuesday. The Reverend Jose Gabriel Funes, the Jesuit director of the Vatican Observatory, was quoted as saying the vastness of the universe means it is possible there could be other forms of life outside Earth, even intelligent ones. How can we rule out that life may have developed elsewhere, Funes said, just as we consider earthly creatures as a brother and sister, why should we not talk about an extraterrestrial brother? It would still be part of creation. In the interview by the Vatican newspaper La Osservatore Romano, I'll go with that, Fune said that such a notion, quote, does not, doesn't contradict our faith because aliens would still be God's creatures. Ruling out the existence of aliens would be like putting limits on God's creative freedom, he said. The interview, headlined, The Extraterrestrial Is My Brother, covered a variety of topics including the relationship between the Roman Catholic Church and science and the theological implications of the existence of alien life. Fune said science, especially astronomy, does not contradict religion, touching on a theme of Pope Benedict XVI, who has made exploring the relationship between faith and reason a key aspect of his papacy. The Bible, quote, is not a science book, Fune said, adding that he believes the Big Bang Theory is the most reasonable explanation for the creation of the universe. The theory says the universe began billions of years ago in the explosion of a single super-dense point that contained all matter. But he said he continues to believe that, quote, God is the creator of the universe and that we are not the result of chance. Fune's urged the church and the scientific community to leave behind divisions caused by Galileo's persecution 400 years ago, saying that that incident has caused wounds, and when in 1633... The astronomer was tried as a heretic and forced to recant his theory that the Earth revolves around the Sun. Church teaching at the time placed Earth at the center of the universe. Uh, Pope John Paul declared in 1992 that the ruling against Galileo was an error resulting from tragic mutual incomprehension. The Vatican Observatory has been at the forefront of efforts to bridge the gap between religion and science. Its scientists clerics have generated top-notch research and its meteorite collection is considered one of the world's best. Saying it's okay to believe in aliens. Hey, why not? Yeah, we're all we're all brothers and sisters. We're all created in God's image. Kind of goes back to what we talked about. Um, oh, going on. How long we've been on the air? Too long. <laughs> no, not tonight. I no. mean, in general. Uh, like like going back to one of our earliest episodes when we talked to Heidi Hollis, and she was telling us that you know if you're under attack by by an alien, then you know use Jesus' name to protect you because they are all God's creatures and, you know, they have to respect the word of the Lord. And, you know, we thought that was kind of crazy at the time. I know Matt Moniz was very upset by that, um, saying that, you know, you're giving people a false defense against something that's relatively indefensible. But, you know, here we go. The Vatican's backing that theory up. Jesus, no joke. Jesus is no joke. Isn't it? He's just all right with me. Isn't Heidi Hollis' birthday? It is Heidi Hollis's birthday. Yeah, happy, happy, happy birthday yeah, to Heidi Hollis. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure she is. <laughs> All right, well, that's right. one toke over the line, sweet Jesus. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> Bring us back. Oh, Matt, I forgot to, to tell you, you know. What's up? You know who's in Indiana Jones? Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. You want to you oh. handle this one? Not quite a hunk, not quite a nerd. Shia LaBeouf. 
pig. All right, what do you have for us? <laughs> the uh, most compre uh, comprehensive government files on UFO activity were opened to the public for the first time last Wednesday, and they disclosed that even air traffic controllers and police officers have seen mysterious crafts in the sky over Britain. The sightings range from incredible tales of little green men visiting visiting the Wirral, which I don't know what Wirral is. I'm assuming it's uh, but, uh, to collab collaborating accounts from policemen and pilots of unidentified flying objects hovering over towns and cities. All are recorded on official official forms held by air bases and police stations and compi compiled in the Ministry of Defense between 1978 and 2002. Disclosed for the first time is a report from three experienced air traffic controllers who attempted to talk in a UFO which landed on a runway before them. The incident occurred on April 19, 1984 at an East Anglian airfield. In the control tower, a senior air traffic controller was supervising his deputy and an assistant. Others in the aviation industry also encountered unidentified flying objects, including a Sea King helicopter crew who tracked two objects on their radar for 40 miles, traveling at almost one nautical mile per second in September 1985. The husband reported visiting bases uh, in Cheshire of green aliens, including one called Algar, who was killed by another race in 1984. Garth Algar? Maybe. Maybe. His wife saw the craft crash over uh, Walsley Town Hall, but the official response was recorded as no reply. The documents are contained in eight files and have been released under the Freedom of Information, La the Freedom of Information Act. Over the next four years, more than 150 of these files will be made available at the National Archive in London. So, really big UFO news this week. Between the Vatican saying that, you know, aliens could exist, and now you have the British government releasing UFO documents. Big alien thing. Yeah. I mean, well, we had Stephen Bassett on the show a couple weeks ago, and he was telling us, you know, Disclosure is coming. There will be a massive disclosure event, and it looks like you know we're we're getting bits and pieces of that from from pretty high up, respectable places. Now, if uh, if only we can get the U.S. government to follow suit, eh, I don't know about that. You know, I was watching E.T. today with with my son. He had never seen it before, and he was he was actually fascinated by the the character he was calling E.T. Entertainment Tonight. No. Uh, oh. E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Oh. And uh, besides the fact that, you know, it absolutely bothers me that they took out all the guns and put in walkie-talkies, oh yeah. it just looks stupid. It does. And um, th that'd be like uh, Indiana Jones being re-edited to take out the Crystal Skulls. You know, Spielberg's, uh, Spielberg's responsible for that. So, But, it, you know, watching it and realizing just how different the approach was to UFOs back then compared to how it is now, you know, like here we have an alien is, is discovered in this boy's home and the first thing that everybody's doing is running there and trying to give it medical care and yep. you know figuring all that stuff out and, uh, but you know the whole neighborhood is crowded around the house and knows what's going on and now here we are you know post X-Files post you know whatever happened to America in the 90's where you know we became so distrusting of the government and then even after that post 9-11 and everything after that you know now these days that wouldn't be the approach that they take you know, essentially, you'd have you know, 
government helicopters coming in and yeah. the Blackhawks and you'd have all this stuff and it would basically be shut down and nobody would be near it. Nobody would know what was going on. So it's just the, the different approaches in time. It just it, it made me think. Yeah. And uh, so I, I guess we should call it a show if, if that works for you. Sure. Uh, I'm sorry that we couldn't be on the air live. Uh, hopefully next week we'll be back on. Pay attention to SpookySouthCoast.com, though, because uh, with Celtics playoffs and I know there's a late Red Sox game that night, so uh, the time could be changed. We could be on early, a nice primetime show. But always stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for updates. And uh, it's, it's always good, Matt, when I can do a show in my, my uh, Penguin Santa Claus hat pajamas. Yep. So <laughs> I should wear these more often. I don't have feet in them, though. So uh, until next time, for Matt, Mo- Matt Moniz, who's down in Waverly Hills, uh, for the silent assassin, Matt Costa, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is...